This morning I have the privilege of introducing Conv2x distinguished keynote speaker, Deputy Director and Chief Innovation Officer of the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, Mr. James Hurry. In his role, Mr. Hurry guides the Institute in relentlessly pursuing and funding novel research to deliver high-impact scientific and technological solutions that advance space health. This entails coordinating and solicitating, soliciting, solicitations, funding mechanisms, outreach efforts, new partnerships, and procurement strategies. Mr. Hurry leads the industry program which funds companies from startups to large multinational companies to develop or validate health and human performance technologies to help humans thrive wherever they explore in space or on Earth. Before joining Trish, Mr. Hurry founded and served as Director of Innovation Partnerships for the Texas Children's Health System. Mr. Hurry has been an adjunct professor in the Jones School of Business at Rice University, having taught healthcare finance and the Health Innovation Ventures Lab Laboratory. Um, it is my honor to welcome Mr. James Hurry to the podium today. Thank you all so much. Um, Y'all can hear me? Yes, sounds like it. Um, thank you all so much for letting me join today. Um, these are the types of things that we really want to engage with, our emerging areas of opportunity that benefit not just healthcare on Earth, but healthcare on space. And so, so I'm going to take you in an entirely different direction uh, than probably the rest of what you're going to hear today, but I am very excited about several of the other panels that I've seen on the agenda, um, tackling several of the things that I dealt with when I was in a large health system um, and, and working with a wide variety of providers. Um, so, just a little bit uh, of background about the organization I work for. The Translational Research Institute for Space Health is a mouthful. So we just say TRISH. Uh, and TRISH is, in essence, kind of NASA's version of DARPA. Um, it is a high-risk high acquisition arm that is, follows the federal acquisition regulations. Um, we are charged with going out beyond and, and bringing in new technologies, new tools, new knowledge uh, from a wide variety of sources um, to advance NASA's deep space exploration. And NASA in and of itself is a very innovative organization. So we're challenged with dancing with them, but not stepping on their toes and not getting too far away, uh, but still being relevant. Um, and that means that we're allowed to take risks. So we are a consortium that is Caltech, MIT, and Baylor College of Medicine, um, but all of our funding is federal. Um, and so everything that we deploy is taxpayer dollars and, uh, and, and everything we work with in essence is for you know, NASA. Um, and so we're, we're challenged with taking things like leaps um, and finding things that, that, are, that are kind of scary to a certain extent. We jokingly say, uh, if your idea or project causes anxiety, then we want to hear about it, actually, <laughs> um, and see what it might do, because there's going to be you know, good and bad and ugly for everything, and we want to weigh the difference and see how far things are. We look everything from 5 to 15 years out. The rest of this decade will be the uh, Artemis missions, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we've been working on the Mars missions, which will launch in 2033. Um, and so we've already been working on what those payloads will look like. So these are the things that we have to overcome. And I'll explain why this is relevant to this discussion and, and, and healthcare in general. But you can see everything from the space environment, uh, in and of itself, human, humans were not 
built to live in space. It, it's a vacuum. It, it's the harshest of environments. Um, so nothing was built to live in space. Um, Spaceflight missions itself, so not just the actual background radiation and microgravity and, and terror of no, of no oxygen. There's also the actual spaceflight mission. You know, when you have to launch, what are the windows, what happens if you have a failure? And then you also have the actual spacecraft itself. So not just does you, you as a human uh, breathe and eat, but how do you actually make sure you stay on mission? How do you get to where you go? How do you do the science you're supposed to do? How do you do whatever you need to build on the International Space Station? And now, since we're talking about Artemis, what do you do in order to get a presence on the moon? And all of that is Mars forward. So everything with the Deep Space Gateway is specifically built in order to, to foster a mission to Mars and back, uh, starting in 2033 and hopefully for the rest of the 2030s. So we have a lot of challenges, and in space, it affects every part of the human uh, anatomy. So it's not just things like cognitive performance or things like cellular repair with regards to radiation. Uh, it's also uh, things like gut motility, um, things like bone loss and muscle loss, uh, cardiovascular potential um, um, jugular vein thrombosis, uh, a number of things that are risks, including even space blindness, which is uh, a condition called uh, SANS, uh, space-associated neuroocular syndrome. All of these are functions of either some kind of fluid shift due to microgravity or some kind of injury due to uh, radiation, any of the things that, that we don't necessarily deal with on Earth, but all of the causes and effects actually overlap quite a bit with the things we deal with with Earth. And the timestamps are different. Again, I'm just kind of giving you the context of how this will come back to, to this conference shortly. But these are the challenges as laid out, not just in a variety of different ways they affect the human, but a, a, a variety of different time frames. So when you first get up to space, or when you first get to the moon, or when you first get to Mars, or when you first come back to Earth, you have sensory motor impairment, which is the difference between being in microgravity versus being in 1G, or 3HG, or 1.6G. And in this environment, you're going to have disorientation. Uh, and then also, when you come back to Earth, you can actually watch the videos of the astronauts or the cosmonauts when they stagger quite badly and look drunk. They are very impaired. And sometimes that can last days. Uh, what we are doing is actually challenging the concept that we don't know who is impaired and who's not by space motion sickness. We actually have a hypothesis and we'll be testing on the SpaceX flight that we can predict who's affected by space motion sickness and who isn't, and then how that also affects Earth-based healthcare, or as we say, terrestrial healthcare. The other end of the spectrum is, you, is radiation. That's cumulative. So cumulative radiation is over the entire life of the flight. That's not a necessarily a big deal when you deal with a short flight, but when you're dealing with a Mars flight, you're looking at 2.5 years, about eight years of, of transport, about a year of habitation, and about a, eight, year, uh, eight months back. So a total of 2.5 years, over that time, you are getting blasted by radiation, not just in transit, where you have no protection from the Van Allen belts, but also in, in Mars, which, uh, which would be also uh, very exposed. So during that period of time, an astronaut is expected to get basically the same equivalent of an entire career of being an astronaut on the ISS. Uh, and, and every one of these astronauts that are signing up for this mission absolutely understand that they're going to be taking on an increased risk, possibly even exotic cancers, uh, but they still want to go because they want to be the next John Glenn, and they're already starting to look at who is signing up for this particular mission. Um, but those are the considerations. When you get into radiation damage, you get into um, things like genetic repair, double-stranded breaks, things that cross over into things like cancer um, therapies here on Earth, and also things like senescence or longevity. So when you are dealing with uh, aging, uh, everything from telomeres to a wide variety of, of, of uh, in essence, epigenetics, um, you've got um, outcomes that you're not really sure what drives it. But we can use space as a way to test that. 
So for instance, one of our recent astronauts who spent a year in space as part of the twin study, when he came back after a year in space, he had the immune system of an 80-year-old man. And that was just an effect of being away from the Earth and, and microgravity and the, and the response on the immune system. We're not entirely sure why. But within two months of being back on Earth, his immune system smacked back to being a normal immune system for somebody of his age, which I believe was in his 40s. Um, and that gives us an, an interesting area where we can actually test things like aging in an environment where you have almost accelerated effects of aging, but then can come back and actually have somebody normal and healthy. This creates a, a kind of testing environment for us to learn from the constraints of space in a way that helps everyone on Earth. And that's kind of our battle cry. Um, so these are some of the areas that are our key areas for, for need, for overcoming all of the challenges of space, not just for NASA astronauts, but now for commercial spaceflight participants. You have everything from just isolation. We actually did a call on cognitive performance and mental health because anxiety and isolation are, are actually the norm for an astronaut. We've just all dealt with it in the pandemic when we hated to be with our family for two years without any way to leave. They deal with it all the time. Um, gravity fields, again, affects things like bone and heart. You get things like hostile closed environments, um, and, and that leads to um, a variety of challenges. One thing we're doing right now is I'm, I'm participating in what's called the Deep Space Food Challenge, just if anyone's interested in that. It's, it's food, food of the future, things that are manufacturing of food, and, and also proteins and carbohydrates and, uh, and fats, and how that can be done either at point of care or, um, or precursors or, or some kind of processing. Um, it's a fun competition with a whole bunch of very strong teams, and so if you're interested in food, that's one thing to consider. But again, all of that is meant to actually drive learning on Earth as well. Um, and then things like autonomous healthcare. This is where you get into, you know, how does blockchain help affect things like how I take care of myself? You know, how do I have my own personal medical record? How do I have my own data as opposed to having my, my local health system have its data? Um, and then, of course, you know, things like radiation. That's the big thing keeping us on Earth. Um, if we can overcome galactic cosmic rays, then at that point we can spread out. But right now, we can't. Um, and we'll keep learning about that. These are examples of the things that we focus on right now. So we were heavy Mars forward for the first four years of the Institute. We were focusing everything on what I jokingly say is, is perfect healthcare in your pocket. Because mass power and volume is a major concern with regards to getting anything up out of orbit. Cost is enormous, but you also can't just take much of a footprint. You have to have the smallest possible footprint. Um, and in that environment, you know, you have to be able to diagnose yourself and you have to be able to treat yourself. And there is going to be a doctor on the Mars mission, and the joke is he's the guy that's definitely getting sick um, and incapacitated in some way, shape, or form. They know that. He's the red shirt from Star Trek. Um, and, and so in that environment, you know, those are different constraints, but those constraints drive innovation. You have to have those constraints in order to need to adapt and, and to ad address technologies like blockchain. We've also been heavily focused recently on the Artemis missions. These are all the lunar missions. So these are all the, the recent Artemis launch that just went out of Cape Canaveral and Kennedy um, and, and will you know, be the rest of this decade, um, including you know, the manned missions, which will be Artemis 3 and 4, which we're already starting to work on. Um, and in those environments, you have a 10 to 20-day mission where you can still come home if something goes terribly awful. <laughs> you know, if, if you are on a lunar surface and you suddenly need an appendicitis, you can be home within two days. Uh, when, you're in, when you're on a Mars mission, there's no coming home. At that point, if something bad happens, you just go in the freezer and you wait till you get home. But on the lunar mission, you know, if something's terrible, there are still things you can do. And data is only a couple of fractions of a second. Uh, there's not a 20-minute delay like there would be on a Mars mission. Uh, on the lunar vicinity, it's, it's not that far from rural healthcare, actually. 
um, it's, it's pretty similar, just without the reimbursement aspects. And then, and then also commercial space flight. So on the commercial space flight program is the one I'm going to talk about. Um, and this is what we've been doing with companies like SpaceX, Space Adventure, um, and this involves uh, all of the research and health monitoring for commercial flights. These are the millionaires and billionaires that are buying tickets in order to get into space, uh, but it's democratizing space at the beginning of the change of the economics curve, and the result is more and more people are going, and the benefit for us is that in the past, if you look at history, there's only something like 500 people that have ever gone to space by whatever definition of space you use. Um, by 2041, we expect that number to change significantly. And the best part about that is all of the astronauts are heavily pre-screened. So these are peak health individuals right at you know, the very best they'll ever be. But if your check clears, you can get on a SpaceX flight. And at that point, you could be any age or you could be any background and you can have comorbidities, you could have you know, diabetes, you could have any kind of congestive heart failure. They don't care. And nobody's regulating that either. So that gives us the opportunity to learn. When you have un abnormal systems under some type of stress, that environment allows you to, to actually take steps forward, which is why we're really focusing on the EXPAND program. Um, so these are the experiments we did on the SpaceX flight. This was the first all commercial uh, civilian space flight. There was no state-sponsored employee anywhere on this. There wasn't even a pilot. Uh, it was all automated. Um, but we've done a number of others. We've also done Axiom Space and Space Adventures. We took the data from this flight and we put it into NFTs. Um, and this is where I would play the video if the video was able to play. But we took all of basically a number of experiments and we took the data and we then put that into a digital artist named Rafik Anadal who does these massive uh, architectural installations. And from that, he then put out a whole series of NFTs that we did over four days. Um, and, and if the video will play, we can actually see the art, but it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Um, if, if it can, then great. Um, but the art in and of itself ended up, we, we had 5,200 pieces of art, and it ended up making something like $5.2 million. And, and all of that does is basically help support future missions in a way that doesn't mean the taxpayer has to pay for that. Um, these were attempts in order to actually lower the burden on all of us, again, all of our funding is taxpayer dollars, my salary is, and we take that seriously. And it actually, it's been incredibly infirming because I've never actually worked in any part of government before and I won't ever again. But I know that in this environment, actually, the, the, the resources have been incredibly um, revered. Um, it's our money. We, we don't spend our money, my, I consider it my money when I'm spending it on, on the experiments we're putting into space. And so for that, we're obviously very careful. But if there's any way that we can augment this in a way that allows for, um, for more activity without it being a burden on the taxpayer, it's, it's something we look for. And so this is my most recent actual application to what healthcare uh, and, 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 uh, and, uh, and blockchain can be. I did have one slide past it, so I'll go ahead and go past that. If anybody wants to see the video, I can certainly send it to you at any time. But this is the outcome. Again, $1.5 million also went to St. Jude's Cancer Research because that was the stated mission of the flight, um, and that was actually the major beneficiary of most of the funding. Um, and, uh, and no federal funds were used, and the data was all de-identified and destroyed uh, afterwards. Um, and, and we'll look to do more of these. We've got a Polaris Dawn flight coming up, and we've got uh, an Axiom 2 flight coming up. So we'll be looking at what experiments can actually result in data the data being the key, and then the data transferring into um, how we use it for the world. So just as my last slide as a way to wrap up, and I'm, and I'm getting the hook, um, the astronaut, uh, the big thing is, you know, the personalized medical record. We don't have hackers on Mars, so security is not a major issue in, Spain, in space. 
but in uh, but a lot of the people that are going are either state, uh, state employees, so either employees of different nation states, not just the United States, but a variety of others, Japan, UK, ESA. Um, and so their, their actual data is, is not just their own, but it's also actually state-owned. Um, so security is important there. And then also, if you are happen to be lucky enough to be a billionaire and are willing to pay $50 million, you probably want your data pretty secure as well. Um, and, and so that's possibly an application. Um, we, we actually take all of the research from several different flights. So the benefit of, of us being federal dollars is that we actually do this across all of the flights that are actually currently happening. So instead of SpaceX building its own data repository that only they can access, we are actually doing it a, a data lake across several flights. That means we can do sensory motor experiments across several different ends over several different flights and several different experiments. And that actually adds the data to be more and more important. We've actually got nine participants in the last nine months, and it takes NASA something like two to three years to get something equivalent. So we can just move much faster. And then uh, our system is TrialX. It's a, it's a great clinical trial system. I know that you're going to get some great further panels after this on things like data and clinical trials. TrialX is actually uh, uh, heading into cryptocurrency and blockchain, and they're doing so for the same reasons. They do clinical trials with Pfizer and a wider variety of other areas. Very strong group out of New York, um, and they've been a pleasure to work with. Um, and then also in the future, we're going to be actually taking everything we've done with our database and actually doing a medical hub that can go on a wide variety of different vehicles. In that environment, it'll be vehicle agnostic, um, and that way we can actually provide medical care in space. And in that environment, we'll be looking at things like blockchain or new technologies in order to make sure security and trust. Trust was a great point that you can trust that everything will be secure, but still used for the betterment of mankind and the best for the academic uh, environments that are trying to build and learn. Uh, and last, we'll focus on data transfer with data delays. How do we get data back from Mars in order to get um, flight surgeon's response within a 20 to 40 minute turnaround, 20 minute there, 20 minute back. If there's any way to facilitate that, um, that would be a major need. So my major question to each of you is, if you see some way that we don't yet, where you can help our astronauts or the commercial space flight activity, um, this is why we do this. We, we want everyone to, to understand what you know the, the challenges are of space flight, and if there's any solution that you see or that you're working on that we don't, we would love to hear about it. Um, and this would be the way you would contact me if ever interested, and also I think the organizer can as well. I'll be standing out here for a little while just in case anybody has any questions, but I thank each of you, and I really am excited about the rest of the day um, and anything else that uh, may come of any of these discussions. Um, and this emerging area is exciting. And thank you to the organizers as well, and the sponsors. Okay. <laughs>